the show you need to get what you desire by avoiding the mistakes made by others before you. Learn the stories and journeys of what success looks like to find the freedom you deserve while thriving with your best life. And now I present to you the one, the only Rapid Results with Andrew Wise. Welcome back to another episode of Rapid Results with Andrew Weiss. Today, we have the all-star, badass, super awesome, Larry Roberts. And in case you don't know who this guy, Larry Roberts, is, he is best described as a high-energy, charismatic podcaster, keynote speaker, best-selling author, and international top-rated course creator with over 1,500 students in 51 countries. He has been coaching and facilitator roles for more than 25 years from corporate environments to teaching martial arts to online course creation. And on top of all that, he has he's a feature in the podcast magazine in April 2020 while being editor-in-chief of one of the largest podcast industry newsletters, the PodFest Messenger. He's regularly speaking at industry events, participating in industry panels, and appearing on other podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, I welcome to you Larry Roberts. Larry, tell us, what is the biggest, most badass professional accomplishment you are most proud of? Wow, right out of the gate. You warned me about that in the green room, but you just jumped right in there, didn't you? (laughs) I got to tell you, man, I think the biggest one is simply being able to walk away from corporate America, jump into my business and podcasting full-time January 4th of last year. So that would definitely be the biggest and baddest and most proud accomplishment. There's definitely been some other wins along the way, but that one stands out. Well, it's an, and this is interviews taking place in 2022, and it's uh, now June uh, 22nd, 2022. So you've officially been a full-time entrepreneur since for a year and a half now? Yeah, it's been about a year and a half. I guess what? We're in June. Yeah. So June 4th was 18 months. So uh, we're, we're at it, man. Wow. And so 24 years in the corporate world, I like to start off with this big accomplishment that you like to brag about. And then I like to go into the superhero story. Like obviously not everyone is born and going, okay, um, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to make, I'm going to be a full-time entrepreneur now. Like it doesn't usually work like that coming out of the womb. Tell us how the heck you went from corporate America to saying, you know what, I'm just going to be a full-time entrepreneur now. Tell us more about that journey and story. It, it's, I, I almost just basically failed my way into it, to be honest with you. <laughs> I mean, I've always had a an idea that I was working on. I always had a side hustle. I always had a different direction that I wanted to go. And I've had businesses along the way. I mean, I had a karate school back in the 90s. I started a swimming pool company in the early 2000s. I now have Readily Random Media, which is the podcast production company. Uh, so there's always been something going on in the background. And even if I didn't have a quote-unquote business, I always was doing, I don't know, eBay or selling this or selling that. Or at one time, probably not the biggest bragging moment, but always had a side hustle. And I had a website called taxidsolutions.com. And wow. (laughs) And when you start a business, you need a tax ID, right? So people didn't know how to get their tax ID. So I was using the information that I had to direct them to how to get their tax ID. And uh, this is kind of scammy a little bit, maybe sort of, kind of <laughs> but it was a website that pointed you to the IRS website and you just download, <laughs> you download the one page application for your tax ID and it's done. 
It's wow. just that simple. But I mean, for like nine ninety five, I was pointing you over there. People loved it for the longest time. I mean, it brought in some nice flash cash for a year or so. But eventually, the complaints caught up to me, and PayPal said, "Nah, we're not going to let you use our services to uh, to finance this website anymore." <laughs> so, so that was probably my craziest one. Interesting. And so you've always kind of, you know, that's crazy. You owned a a martial arts school. You did these, all these side hustles. Tell us more about in that 24 year journey. Like what was that straw that broke the camel's back that you're like, you know what? I just need to take the leap. I can't have the safety net anymore. Do you wish you had done it sooner? Do you think it was divine timing of when you did it? Uh, Tell us more about that. Man, probably all the above in all honesty. (laughs) You know, the karate school was kind of just a pipe dream. I had no idea what I was doing in my mid-20s opening up a karate school and literally made every mistake you could possibly make. I opened the gym in a warehouse in Texas with no (laughs) heat or no air conditioning. And let me tell you that that doesn't exactly attract parents to bring the little rugrats to the karate (laughs) school. So you got to have AC and heat. But at the time, I just wanted to fight gym. I wanted to be the tough guy and I wanted to train with fighters. So that was my idea. And it failed miserably. So uh, that didn't work out. And after going a few years without much of an income, there came the realization that I had to get a real job again. <laughs> yeah. So I actually ended up reaching out to uh, an organization called Manpower. It's a staffing agency. And they got me in at a company called Texas Instruments. And, and I mean, even people that aren't in Texas are probably familiar with TI. At yep, least calculators. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So everybody's got that TI calculator. So at least they do one thing right. But <laughs> from there, I was there about three, three and a half years, ended up in a training uh, role there as one of their corporate trainers. And I leveraged that to eventually get out of the small town that I'm from. I'm from Sherman, Denison area here in Texas, which is North Texas. And I wanted to get down to the big city. So I used that position to find me a job down near uh, in North Dallas. And uh, that was also as a training manager down there. So I worked, started working for this company, went into their warehouse or one of their distribution centers and wrote policies and procedures and training manuals, handled the, the temporary staffing for the distribution center and uh, made a big change. I mean, I came in, made a pretty significant impact, lowered turnover rate by 400%. Wait, pa- pause on that for a second. Yeah. Like, what, what the heck? Like, <laughs> like how does a, how do you, uh, let's see. So how many people were leaving the company at what rate and, and walk us through how are you able to reduce that? Like, uh, tell us they were leaving faster that. than we could get them. Let me just put it that way. So yeah. um, there was a lot of, of different components that came into play there. A lot of it was culture in the distribution center. A lot of it was a lack of policy and a lack of procedures. People would show up on the job and they'd have absolutely no direction. They'd just be standing around for a day going, oh, I guess I work here. I don't know what to do. So I ended up putting together a team. I had six trainers that reported directly to me. And each time we had a a new batch of recruits that would come into the DC, they would go through these training procedures and get policy manuals and that sort of thing. So they had some direction. They had trainers that were walking them through the process. And once people started realizing that we really cared about their success within the the distribution center, they started staying. So Mm. they saw a massive reduction in the turnover that we had going there. 
And how come it's not common sense for companies to go, oh, maybe I should tell this person what to do their their first day on the job? Like, how does does that even happen in the first place? Like, how how come things aren't documented? Like, it sounds like this is a big company. Like, they it's not it's not just three people chilling. Like, is it just like a too big to fail idea mindset that like, oh, whatever, we'll just hire more people who actually want it even more kind of thing? Like, how does that even happen? <laughs> I, I wish I could answer that. A lot of the questions where you go, I wish I could, uh, how does that even happen? If I was able to answer those questions, I may still be in corporate America. <laughs> yeah. I found myself sitting there way too often going, how does this even happen? You know? <laughs> but no, when I started working there, you know, the company was founded back in 1919 and they've been around mm-hmm. forever, but it was mm-hmm. still a very, still kind of had a mom and pop feel to it. You know, it was in an industry that is slow to evolve. Even today, it doesn't matter whether it's this company or another company that's in that space. They don't exactly latch on to modern business practices or technology. Uh, They're very slow to adopt. And I think it was still just that mentality of, hey, man, people need jobs. They're going to keep coming. We don't have to care about these people. We don't have to know their names. If they want a job and they want to make an hourly wage, they're going to show up. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> but it doesn't necessarily work, especially today. Yeah. So, I mean, hopefully you got compensated well then for, you said, decreasing their turnover rate 400%. Like, I know there's like this classic joke of, uh, you know, a, a CEO of a company who has a nice car and his employees like, oh my gosh, it's such a nice car. And the CEO looks in the eyes and says, yeah, if you work really hard this year, I can get another one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, I mean, it opened up opportunities. And I mean, it allowed me to get out of the small town where I was from and actually move down to the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. So that was the goal. Uh, mm-hmm. So right out of the gate, I had that going for me. But the success that I found in the warehouse opened up an opportunity to be a part of an implementation team. The The company that I was with decided to go ahead and implement a new software system globally across every facility that they own. And they had facilities from New York to California and everywhere in between, a couple of them overseas uh, as well. And they needed somebody to head up the training for this implementation. And uh, I happened to be a candidate for that and was brought on as part of the implementation team. And next thing you know it, I find myself in IT. So, (laughs) (laughs) wow. Yeah, that project lasted about, I'll say, 15 years, lasted a long time because the implementation was across every facility and also any acquisition that took place during that time that this company bought. We had to go and implement it there as well. So there are plenty of opportunities for training, plenty of opportunities for growth within the company in that role. But eventually the, the time ran out and the project was essentially done. Yeah, now they've got it. You know, it's it's cakewalk if we buy a new company. Look, it's so funny. I still say we. I was there 21 years, so it's still hard to step back and realize that I'm not we anymore. Still got that we mentality, you know. But now they've got it down to such a science that even when they acquire a company, it's pretty straightforward. Not a lot of training that needs to be done. And that came to a close, and I found myself not really having a home within the company. There wasn't a whole lot of training going on. They didn't necessarily have a culture of ongoing education. Um, That's one of the things that TI did differently is that if you work at TI, depending on your tenure there, you have to get X number of hours per year in ongoing education. So whether that's learning business practices or safety procedures or whatever it may be, you have to attend these classes. So there was always a role for corporate trainers in that environment. This company didn't subscribe to that. So I essentially got absorbed by the IT department and started falling into a data analysis type role. I was writing reports, inventory reports, sales reports, that sort of thing. 
And I became the report guy. I'm literally the report guy. And uh, we used a program called Crystal Reports, which is pretty common in the workplace these days. Like TPS uh, reports from office. Uh, yeah, very similar. <laughs> I needed my cover sheets for my TPS reports. I did not get the memo. Um, <laughs> but they used to call me Crystal Larry because I wrote all the Crystal Reports. And mm. yeah, that's fun. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah. During that time, you know, I continued to have the side hustles. And back in the early 2000s, I'll say it was around 2004, probably before that, probably around 2003, I started a pool company called Pristine Pool and Spa Service. A buddy of mine started a company. He was building pools and it only made sense that he's going to need somebody to clean those pools after he builds them for his clients. So Mm -hmm. I jumped in there, fired up this company and was going to do just that. And the company was successful. I mean, it was great. Yeah. Uh, I was working with uh, my direct report manager there at the office and we set it up where I could come in and I'd work six to three at the office. Then from 3 p.m. till dusk, I would sit there and do pool stuff, Wow, uh, do pool stuff on the weekends. And uh, we grew it. I had probably 55 to 60 clients on the roster before it came to that point where just doing the whole six to three wasn't cutting it. So I had to hire somebody to do the pool route. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was uh, that was nice. That was pretty cool. At one time, we had two people running the pool route for us. And then I was just taking care of maintenance, but repairs, that sort of thing. Uh, overseeing projects such as remodels. And if you need to tile your pool or something, that was the type of thing that I would get involved with. But it finally got to the point where even that was too much. And I had to make the decision whether or not to sell it or to jump and do the pool business full-time. And at the time, I just did not have the, we'll call it testicular fortitude, the testicular fortitude to step out and do it full-time. I was scared. I was, I mean, I had a great salary. Mm -hmm. I had great benefits. I mean, the company was super great at the time. They took great care of me. I mean, they took great care of me all the way up until the day that I left last January. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it was just too nerve-wracking at the time to make that jump. So I chose to sell the business. Wow. Yeah, we sold the business and uh, profited from it a little bit and then kind of moved on. And uh, from that point forward, it was just side hustle stuff, mostly eBay, tax ID solutions. Um, I tried another website called IWantToBreakUp.com where we would send breakup notices to your significant other. If you wanted to, if you wanted to break up. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. If you wanted to break up and you, you weren't brave enough to do it yourself, we would do it for you. Just reach out for $69. We'll break up. With- <laughs> $69. <laughs> yeah. So it was great. And, uh, uh, and tell us about, cause I know that that's what a lot of people struggle with and go through is, is regret. I mean, did you find out like two years later that that pool company had 10x in value or 10x in revenue or tell us about more about that and how you handled that? And I'm curious about that. Yeah. The guy that bought it from me, he ran it for several years and then he ended up selling it as well. Mm. I don't think it's still around today, but the gentleman I sold it to, he was he was close to retirement age. And this was just one of those things he was kind of doing to keep it floating, that sort of thing and keep a little money coming in, keep a little something to do. But I think he finally got to the point where, you know, he wasn't even doing that anymore. So he sold it. And I don't think pristine pool and spa service is in business any longer, Mm. but it's funny. I still get calls from it almost 20 years later. Really? (laughs) Yellow page dad for that business. And I occasionally still get calls uh, about pristine pool. and Wow. That's interesting. (laughs) my pool no 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 probably not gonna do that (laughs) but and uh you you mentioned yeah going back to not having testicular fortitude like 
does it, did it ever, it sounds like it does kind of eat away at you a little bit that you wish you had to the business longer. Like, like walk us through how you've quote unquote coped with that or like how you just kind of let it go versus letting it eat at you every day. I'm curious about how you process all that. It's hard. Honestly, there's some days I still look back and go, man, I wish I was still in the pool business. I literally just started seeing ads on my Facebook feed and I don't know why, uh, but it's for pristine landscaping. So hmm. it's a landscape company called Pristine. And as soon as I saw that name, of course, it just, ah, it's just like a knife to the heart. Yeah. It's like, I, miss, I miss Pristine, you know, because we had it. I started it from scratch. I mean, it was literally from the ground up and built it to a point where I either had to get rid of it or I had to jump in. And uh, I managed to do it using primarily Google AdWords back in the day. And uh, Google AdWords and uh, Yahoo had a similar uh, offering back then with pay-per-click campaigns. And the business was totally built on pay-per-click advertising. Wow. And it worked out amazingly. So yeah, I sit back at, at times and I still regret getting rid of it. Uh, I regret building something that was that significant. And then just kind of letting it go. It's almost like raising a child and just going, all right, see you. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. It just, it, there's definitely a, a gap there. And I sit back and wonder, you know, of course, what would have been? What would have mm-hmm. been if I had stepped out? What would have been? Would I be the big pool builder now in Dallas, Fort Worth? Would I be the pool guru or what? Who, who knows? You know? Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm bad about that, to be flat out honest with you. I'm real bad about sitting around going, what if? That will eat at me and it, it it still eats at me. Like I said, I just, you know, started seeing those ads. So mm-hmm. it's very difficult to cope with, but I try to just focus on what I'm doing now and, and move forward. But yeah, there was definitely a, a hole in my heart that was left behind from getting rid of that business. A lot of regret there, almost like buyer's remorse, but I guess it's just, it's seller's remorse. Yeah. I mean, did you, uh, I know like some people, like they write down like what's eating at them on a piece of paper, then they burn it in the fire. Obviously it still hurts you a little bit today, but I guess what I'm trying to ask is what would you say to current Larry or to other entrepreneurs or people who are struggling with the same thing? Like, oh, coulda, woulda, shoulda kind of thing. Like, what would you say to them to help them realize that life goes on? Like it's okay to recognize it's okay to have regrets, but also recognize life goes on. Like what would you say to, to that crap? Yeah, hundred percent that crap, and and it's funny. My, my, that's exactly what my wife calls it because I have a bad habit when I start thinking about the past and all these things I've done in the past and all these opportunities I had in the past. And when those thoughts start kind of clicking, I always turn to Pink Floyd and Floyd <laughs> on wallow in self pity and in my Pink Floyd haze. And if mm-hmm. my wife gets to be listening to Pink Floyd, I get in a lot of trouble. So <laughs> my first word of advice is. Don't listen to Pink Floyd. Uh, But the others, man, sitting there and and crying about it's not going to change anything. Mm -hmm. Take action, move forward and establish yourself with either another business or in another direction in life. You know, I could have just as easily turned right around and applied myself to corporate life and pushed my career there even further. But as you know, I made even bigger mistakes after that. And it really just kind of spiraled. And I think that that's a, a dangerous place to be is, is in that spiral. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you do make those decisions, just have the courage to stand with those decisions and look back and know that it was done for a purpose. It was done for a reason. At the time, I felt it was the best decision. I had certain responsibilities that still needed to be addressed. So if the business failed, I wasn't just failing myself, but I was failing my kids. I was failing my wife. I was failing everything. Mm-hmm. And so all those things have to be taken into consideration. and. I think I made the right choice, uh, but it does take time often to reconcile that. Yeah, that makes sense. 
and so fast forwarding to uh, January 2021. Uh, so for those who are only listening in, uh, Larry is known for his red hat and his hoodie and his awesome glasses. He even has a cool meme called Cool Cat Larry. It's uh, very, very viral at the moment. Tell us about this personal branding journey. Um, it, it's cool to hear uh, you know, in my previous interview, one of the guests goes, oh yeah, 10 years to be an overnight success. Uh, <laughs> sounds about right for a lot of people, especially hearing your experience and, and your story. And it's cool how many businesses you've started. Some were successful. Some you got banned from PayPal. Some uh, were just weren't making enough money, I suppose. Uh, real quick too, tell us about the the online course um, journey. How you got into that? How you got to, I think, 1,500 students? Like that, that That's crazy. Yeah, I think that number's up a little bit now as well. But that was all part of the brand building that I'm living now. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I got into podcasting eight years ago. Uh, I had just come out of rehab. I went into rehab for alcoholism. So uh, Pink Floyd will do that to you too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyways, I had just come out of rehab and was looking for something. I didn't know what. I hadn't been sober in umpteen years. And a friend of mine convinced me to listen to uh, an episode of the Joe Rogan podcast. Eight years ago. Eight years ago. Yeah. Oh, so you're an OG fan before it was cool to listen to Joe Rogan, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I even refused it. The only reason I even listened is because uh, Ryan was his name. He kept hammering me. He's like, man, you're going to love this podcast thing. I'm mm -hmm. like, look, dude, podcasts are for dorks. I'm not listening to podcasts. That's stupid. It's cheesy. I ain't got time for it. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go play World of Warcraft instead. Yeah, way less cheesy and nerdy. <laughs> so, but I'm all, I've been a huge fight fan. You know, I've been watching the Ultimate Fighting Championship since '93. I competed back in the day, all that fun stuff. Uh, and Joe Rogan is also the commentator for the UFC. So he says, "Look, man, you already you, you love his commentary. You know who he is. Just give the show a listen." And I'm like, "All right, fine. I'll listen. You'll just shut up." So I decided to listen, and. Man, I was blown away. I was blown away because he had two comedians on there. It was Tony Hinchcliffe and Joey Diaz were the guests on that particular episode. And the comedy that they were using, the comedy style they were using was very reminiscent of the comedians of the 80s. Very, very irreverent. Uh, very, very no rules. Very, very in your face. Very blunt. Mm -hmm. uh, laced with profanities. And I loved it. I was like, oh my God, this is right <laughs> up my alley. And you can say this on a podcast? This is unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. I'm totally in here. Mm -hmm. So after hearing that, I thought, you know what? I got to have me one of these podcast things. And I decided to jump in. I went out and I bought myself Blue Snowball microphone, which is literally just a ball. It's a white. That's why they call it a snowball. <laughs> and it's also literally the worst mic you could possibly buy for podcasting. So <laughs> steer clear of the snowball. Uh, but that's what I bought. And uh, a friend of mine, actually his son was doing open mics here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So I reached out to Jamie. I said, bro, why don't we start a podcast? He's like, what's that? I said, here, check this out. And we kicked off our very first podcast. And we sat there in my game room, which is right outside my studio here. And we gently passed that snowball rogan together. We also just kind of let loose. And good Lord, we listened back to that. And we just couldn't release it. It was just a little rough. It was, <laughs> it yeah. was a lot. Yeah, so mm -hmm. not only the audio quality, but the audio content. So we're like, All right, <laughs> we, we, we probably don't need to be taking it this far. So we dialed it back a little bit, but then we uh, recorded our second episode and we launched the first podcast I ever had called Accidentally the Whole Tip. 
my gosh. <laughs> that was the show. So we had a blast with it, man. We had everybody on from adult entertainers to cheesy lawyers to, and you name it, comedians, uh, musicians. Wait, what's a cheesy lawyer? What does that mean? There's, there's, a, there's a lawyer over in Fort Worth, and he is the Texas law hawk. And dude... He's amazing. He has the best worst commercials ever. And he just loved it. Everything he did had a had a hawk that would swoop in and save the day. And his mm-hmm. commercials were just they were just amazing. I mean, he'd ride a moped and jump through a, a ring of fire and the hawk would come and save. I mean, just very, very cheesy, you know, but he was amazing. So we had him on the show. Just you name it. Anybody that was fun and interesting, we had on the show. And we ended up taking the show to uh, an internet radio company here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Uh, We started on their channel. I think they had 35-ish shows on there. They placed us on Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. right after uh, a religious broadcast of some sort. Yeah, that's a big contrast. (laughs) (laughs) Pastor would walk out of the studio and the others would walk in right behind him. So... Uh, but we did manage to go from the bottom of their roster all the way up to the fifth or sixth spot before the studio shut their doors. Uh, it was only a couple of months before they ended up closing up shop. But mm-hmm. that did not deter us. We knew accidentally the whole tip had more to offer. So, <laughs> we started hitting up restaurants and businesses here in the DFW Metroplex, trying to find a place to take the show live and put it on stage. Mm-hmm. And we finally found a club that was under brand new ownership. And they gave us a shot. And so we took accidentally the whole tip to the club and we were doing a live uh, stage show, doing a lot of crowd work, just having a blast with it. And it eventually grew or evolved into an open mic night. And Mm -hmm. this day, it's still one of the largest open mics in all of DFW outside of a comedy club. So, wow. In a sense, uh, the tip lives on. (laughs) on. (laughs) Not accidentally, though. (laughs) It was on purpose. You know, and that's what's sad is I, you know, still being in corporate America, uh, we did manage to uh, acquire a company, and I ended up getting new management. And that new manager uh, did not wait, like wait, you guys company. acquired a company, but they somehow gave you a new manager. What, the company that I still worked for, they acquired a new company. With that company came, came certain managers that came with it, and those managers were integrated into our corporate environment. And isn't usually flipped around that the company that does the acquiring, don't they boss the company that they acquire around? Eh, contracts vary. And their acquisition, their management was guaranteed management slots within our company. Interesting. Huh. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> I ended up getting a new manager and that manager was a little more straight laced than uh, maybe my prior manager was. And he mm-hmm. hated the content of the tip. So he, he hated uh, the tip. Huh? He hated every bit of it. Every bit of it. <laughs> And uh, he essentially told me that, you know, I needed to quit the show. I was in a, a, a high level position within the company and I wasn't representing the company professionally and I needed to, to leave or he was going to make my life miserable. So I decided to go ahead and close the show. And mm. we were getting multiple thousands of downloads per episode. The show was crushing, wow. very successful by any standards of a podcast. And it, it hurt a lot. If you want to talk about sitting back and having regrets, I still miss the tip. You know, I miss the, the fun. I miss the excitement. I miss the downloads. I miss the success that we were experiencing with that. But I did make the very difficult decision to kill the show. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought you had a uh, partner at the time helping you run the show too, though. I did. That was Jamie Gravit. And mm-hmm. Jamie went on to, uh, he now has a residency at the Sahara in Vegas because of the show. And he opens for Eddie Griffin uh, in Vegas. What? Yeah. Uh, 
all because of the podcast. So the podcast. So he he couldn't take the show on his own. He rather he's like, oh, I'll just do my own thing. Is that is that kind of what happened there? He, he definitely leaned more into the comedy side of things. So he gotcha. he continued to run the open mic, and he was attached to that open mic for quite a while, uh, up until he landed the the gig in Vegas and mm-hmm. the open mic. It was turned over to somebody else, and now it's still running. But Jamie is, I think he's done in Austin now, actually doing comedy down there since that's where comedy has really blown up over the last five to seven years. So, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, we ended up killing the show and, uh, it didn't do anything to help my career. The manager still hated me. I think there was just a significant personality <laughs> conflict there. Interesting. Yeah. Regardless of, of what I did, uh, we weren't going to have the best relationship. So that kind of got me kicking rocks a lot, you know, as far as my corporate career goes, I'm like, I'm, I, I don't care for this dude too much. And he doesn't care for me too much. And I'm not really happy in the position. I'm doing work that I really don't know how to do if I really want to be flat out honest, because the, the data analysis over the years, I mean, the industry evolved. And I mean, to my own uh, misfortune, I guess I, I did not evolve with it. You know, I, I made mm. the decision not to evolve with it. I just, I'm, I'm not a big numbers guy. You know, I just don't like math. It, being in that position, it wasn't something that I was overly motivated to to be a part of. So my distraction grew and my depression grew and just kicking rocks grew and Pink Floyd was on all the time. But I had to have a podcast. Even though I killed that show, I knew I had to have something. Mm-hmm. But I didn't understand the industry at this time. You know, I, I didn't know exactly what the rules were or how you actually structured a successful show. I mean, we did dirty comedy. I mean, there's an audience for that. It's, it's, you don't have to be real. I mean, you kind of got to be a little funny, but you don't have to understand the podcast industry to know how to grow a show in that niche. It just, yeah. And Mm -hmm. we took so many different avenues to grow the show. I mean, we got out there, we hustled, we made ourselves known in the community. We made ourselves known everywhere we could possibly make ourselves known. So it wasn't like we just When you say make yourselves known, what what does that that tangibly look like? At the time, it, it, looked like for one getting on that radio station making sure that people were hearing us there we found an audience with them uh again we hustled we went throughout the dallas fort worth metroplex trying to find a club to take the show live so it kind of goes back to i did a reel just a few days ago talking about the power of showing up and Mm -hmm. that's what we were doing we were showing up everywhere we were taking corporate meetings with these companies and we were trying to get in their restaurants and they were they were more along the lines of what we call restaurants Uh, So our content was applicable. I mean, it was like Hooters and we used to have a chain here called Redneck Heaven. How could that have possibly, you you said used to have a chain called Redneck Heaven? Yeah, they kind of fell apart, but uh, (laughs) it it was amazing. I mean, it was was an amazing restaurant. We hung out there all the time. They had three or four Mm -hmm. locations here in the DFW Metroplex. Uh, but mismanagement eventually uh, kind of ran them out of business. And Mm. they were always pushing the gamut a little bit. They were always just, they were a little more risque than, than Hooters or even Twin Peaks or those. They were, they had more than Hooters. (laughs) Very much more, very, very much more. Uh, (laughs) You know, they had lingerie day and they had costume day and they had tasty day and all these types of things that just really, the community wasn't very supportive. Let's just put it that way. And Redneck Heaven, ironically enough, was right next door to Red Lobster. So <laughs> you got the, the waste staff at Redneck Heaven out on the patio out there, scantily clad. Then you got mm-hmm. Ma and Pa and Granny and Grandma over here at Red Lobster trying to enjoy their meal with uh, the visual visuals looking like something out of Roadhouse. So yes. <laughs> always pushing that edge. But we thought we would be a perfect fit for that environment. So mm-hmm. I mean, that was one of the companies that we took a meeting with. Regrettably, at the time, they said no because I thought we would have been a perfect fit. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but we still, even though they said no and other restaurants said no, we kept showing up. We kept taking mm-hmm. meetings. We kept meeting with these managers uh, and these owners of these establishments. And then we finally found that club. So that's what I mean by that. And that's what I mean today as well. You know, the same thing goes for uh, the, my, my company now, you know, Readily Random Media. I show up. I show up everywhere. I mean, I'm going tonight to a grand opening for some studios here in Dallas. Uh, mm-hmm. I'll be there from 5 to 7.30 this afternoon. Uh, I met with a company in uh, in Miami just last week. Matter of fact, I think I have a call with them this afternoon. Uh, where we're striking up a deal where they're going to acquire my podcast launch services, but I'm partnering with them. So yeah. it's, it's still showing up, reaching out, making those connections, making yourself known to anybody and everybody in your industry and get the attention that you need to be successful. So even with the comedy podcast, even with the content that we were creating at the time, we were still showing up. We were still reaching out there. We were still making ourselves known. And that's what I mean by that. That's that's what you have to do. It doesn't matter what your podcast niche is, what your business niche is. You still have to get out there. You still have to hustle. You still have to make things happen. Things aren't just going to fall in your lap and, and come to you go, oh, cool. You have a podcast. Well, come come do your show at my club. It's, it's, it's just not going to happen. I like what, like uh, what you mentioned so far. Like you know, I, I like to say in every episode that the top mistake people make is like, oh, if I build it, if I post it, people will come, mm. and that's not how the world works. You're like, no, Andrew. I was literally going to every restaurant in town. I was literally getting on the radio station. I was probably handing out flyers. I was telling friends, telling family, going to networking meetings, like constantly promoting it. So tell us more what that looks like for online promotions to get to that 1,500 students and what that looks like. Yeah, I mean, that was all part of the brand building. And I was kind of getting there to the story. I just got sidetracked. You got me all excited. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> after doing that show, I started my second show, which was Readily Random. And I had no idea that naming a show Readily Random was such a massive mistake. Uh, because mm. you're, you're literally shooting yourself in the foot. Because no one knows what the heck that means. No one gets the joke. I thought it was funny up here because it's just going to be Readily Random. We're just going to have chats with whoever we want to talk to. Yeah. People don't know what that means. And they don't want to listen. You know, mm-hmm. so often you hear that I want to be the next Joe Rogan. I want to do what he does. Well, he can do it because of who he is. He can do it because he already had a pre-established community. He can do it because yeah. he's been doing it for 14, 15 years now. Mm-hmm. He's got certain leeway that he can take because of who he is and the community he had prior to that. People don't take into account that Joe Rogan was or still is. Eh, he's phasing out, actually. Uh, as the announcer for the UFC, massive mm-hmm. community there. He was on, what was it, News Radio, I think was the name of the show back in the 90s. He was on TV before podcasting was even a thing. Fear Factor, yeah. He was on Fear Factor. <laughs> I mean, everybody knew him for Fear Factor. So he had all this exposure prior to even starting a podcast. And mm-hmm. then again, you alluded to it earlier, a 10-year overnight success. Joe Rogan's a 15-year overnight success. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, and longer than that, he's a 20, 30-year overnight success. Mm-hmm. So that's what people don't take into consideration. And anyways, going back to starting the podcast of, called Readily Random, I just knew I had to have a podcast after killing uh, the tip. And I started that show again, not knowing the hole that I was digging for myself right out of the gate. But as I was there and as I started to grow, as I started to evolve and evolve and learn more about the industry, I knew I needed to put in place certain things to build my own personal brand, to make me the announcer, to make me the brand, to make me the the person that people want to tune in and listen to. That's awfully me, me, me. But when you're the brand, you kind of have to take that approach to a certain degree. And And I want to pause there, too, because I think it's like Grant Cardone. He pushes like if you don't promote yourself, like who else will? And so you have to make it about yourself um, in the beginning. Well, 
it, probably till the end of time, really. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that doesn't mean you ignore everybody else or that you yeah. walk on everybody else or that you use everybody else. You also lift up everybody around you mm-hmm. and everybody that's in your in your environment, in your community. You lift everybody up around you. But you still have to focus on you. And that's part of the brand building process. And that's where the course creation came into play. The mm. course creation actually came after I wrote my book. I thought I needed a book. You know, if I want to be taken seriously as a speaker, as a podcaster, as somebody that is a subject matter expert, I need to have a book to support that. So I found a book writing coach and I found Laura Peterson. She's a part of our podcast community, as a matter of fact. Laura specializes in writing Amazon number one bestsellers. And she had a program where you can write an Amazon number one bestseller in 30 days. I thought, well, that sounds cool. I don't want to be yeah. this forever. So 30 days, I'm in. So mm-hmm. I hired a coach and she walked me through the process. I wrote my book called One Plus One Equals Podcast. And <laughs> I'm a number one bestseller in four different categories. And during that time, I met Ellie Natoli. And Ellie specializes in course creation. So mm-hmm. as a partner within the book writing uh, project, uh, her and I became friends. She goes, hey, do you want to collaborate on a course? I'm like, heck yeah, I'd love to do that. So that's where the course came into play. And the course also called One Plus One Equals Podcast. We put it out there on Udemy. We promoted the heck out of it. And we sold thousands of copies of the course. Nice. Uh, it's, actually, it's actually still out there today. But I don't recommend anybody buy it. <laughs> what? It's just a little dated. You know, It's been out there for about three years. And some of the information needs to be updated. And so that's something that I got to get around to doing. Uh, It's still, you could still use it to launch a podcast. There's just some minor changes that are there that need to be made, but very successful course. And again, it was because I didn't know what I was doing. I reached out and I hired a coach. And that's something that I recommend all people do. If you're looking to build a brand, if you're looking to establish yourself in even one certain aspect of that brand building process, hire a coach. Hire a specialist. Hire somebody that knows to do how to do exactly what you're trying to achieve. And uh, and I think and so. Going back to yeah. So for those listening, I'm, I'm a marketing and sales coach, and I agree that if people are serious about their success in life, it's very recommended to get a coach, get a mentor, get people who will save you that hassle, will save you having to bang your head against the wall, going, "How do I figure this out? How do I get out of my own way?" But I also understand that you know hiring your first coach or maybe second or third can, can be scary. If you're not sure if they can help you. They're like, oh, by the way, you have to pay me to tell you what to do. You're like, what? I can do it on my own. I can figure out my own. And then, of course, okay, well, then why haven't you done it yet? And then everyone goes, uh, uh, well, uh. <laughs> so tell us more about your experience of you know hiring your first coach or first few coaches and investing into yourself and, um, and, and how you've gained the confidence to get people to invest in you. I'm curious about your experiences with that. The confidence to have people invest in me just comes with time. And it comes with experience and it comes with repetition. It comes with reputation too. I mean, it's a combination of all the above. But as far as finding coaches for myself, I haven't always picked the right coach. Uh, You know, I've made mistakes and uh, it hurts. It stings a little bit. But I think we learn as we continue to go through the process, we learn how to identify the coach that can help us accomplish whatever goal it is that we need their help with. Yeah, you can sit back. You can Google it. You can watch YouTube videos. You can do all that. But understand that if you take that route, A, it's going to take you a lot longer to get where you want to go. And B, it's probably going to be considerably more painful than partnering with someone that's already been there, that knows all the pain points, that knows how to guide you through the process and help you avoid those same mistakes that they made. So you have the advantage of working with a coach in that you don't have to go through the pain process. 
you could skip to that. You can go straight to the front of the line and accomplish whatever it is that you're looking to accomplish, whether it's launching a podcast, writing a book, writing a course, or starting a business. It doesn't matter. Uh, but you can't trade experience for nothing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you can go get YouTube videos for nothing, but you're not going to get that experience that's in that process. Yes, you can read books all day and you're investing some time there, but they're still not giving you all the little pitfalls that you're going to fall into along the way. So uh, if you want to gain that experience and get where you want to go a lot quicker, you you can't do it better than finding the right coach for you. And tell us again, um, what made you officially decide to invest into your first coach? Um, or did you invest into a few programs and courses first before you invest into like an official person, quote unquote, to, to help you out? Because I know like, you know, some people in my family, they're like, oh, I never need to hire anyone to help me because I can figure it out on my own. And, and obviously there's a lot of prideful people in the world. So I'm curious what helped push you over the edge to go, you know what, I know this might be two or three months of my paycheck or half of my monthly paycheck, but I'm ready to um, take that investment and take that quote unquote risk as well. I think it was the frustration that was getting, uh, the frustration got to me. I give all the credit to Pat Flynn and Cliff Ravenscraft because I watched their YouTube videos on how to podcast. I yeah. actually bought Cliff Ravenscraft, uh, his, his package uh, that he offers his microphone, the PR 40 and his mixer and uh, the noise gate and everything that he had back then uh, to start podcasting. And that was great. It got me off to a great start, but I still made so many fundamental mistakes that I just didn't get from watching those YouTube channels or watching those videos that Cliff Ravenscraft put together. I just missed that because it's the application of what you're watching or what you're reading or what you're hearing that sometimes escapes you. You think you got it conceptually or you think you have a better way. Oh, I hear what he's saying there, but I'm going to try it this way. Yeah, you might try it that way, but guess what? It's probably not going to work. So I needed that one-on-one instruction. I needed somebody to actually talk to. I wanted a person. I wanted somebody to coach me through the process. I wanted to be able to pose certain questions directly to them and start working with them. And I did hire some. I hired some people that ran off with my money, as a matter of fact. Really interesting. I'm not going to drop any names, but big big time podcast producer of a podcast that I listened to back in the day. And I managed to get a hold of him and he agreed to coach me. And I paid him uh, not a crazy amount of money, but a significant sum of money. He shows up on one call high as a kite and then ghosts me after that. So (laughs) this is working out. Wow. And to my own ignorance i I probably should have known better i mean uh, on the podcast that they're on you know getting high is part of the (laughs) shtick yeah he might show up to coaching sober i don't know i don't know what my Mm. experiences were so Mm. but i at least expected him to show up and he never showed up after that never returned calls never returned emails just took my initial investment and and probably smoked it so and how did you make sure to like not let that affect you hiring future coaches i know some people would after that experience they'd say i'm never hiring anyone to ever help me ever again like how did you overcome that (laughs) it was so easy because i go all right bro what'd you expect i mean because you you know what they're doing you know what they're involved in what did you expect that was pretty stupid on your part so Mm -hmm. what i ended up doing going forward was i did my homework on coaches i got (laughs) testimonials on coaches. I saw some of the work that these other coaches had done, got a lot of confidence in them before I pulled the trigger. And then each time after that, since I pulled the trigger, it's been pretty good. So uh, <laughs> it's really good, actually. Pretty good is not fair. It's been exceptional. So mm-hmm. that it's, it's again, it goes right back to the experience factor. 
live and learn. And for me, it's always that live and learn. It, it, I, I have to do it the hardest way possible for it to get through. It, there's, I've never done anything easy. I don't know what the deal is, but you know, it's one of those situations. I guess it's a character trait. <laughs> yeah. And, and so going back to um, you getting paid as a consultant, as a producer, and, and so tell us about that journey. Like, um, and, and do you think it helped you? I mean, obviously building a pool isn't cheap. I mean, would you split the profits 50-50 with your partner or, or uh, what, what kind of profit split did, did you get? You know, there wasn't, back in the day, there wasn't a profit split. I started a separate company from the builder that I had mentioned before. So it, the company was mine. Now, I did have a partner that was doing most of the back end as far as the the books and that sort of thing. Remember, I said earlier, I don't like numbers. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. we had all the taxes and all the bookkeeping and all the invoicing, mm-hmm. all that fun stuff. And I was the forward facing guy. I was the guy out there shaking hands and kissing babies. That's what I do well is mm-hmm. get out and, and mingle with people and meet people and sell and close that sort of thing. That's my, that's my specialty there. So there, there wasn't necessarily a profit split back then because there was to a certain degree, but it's kind of hard to explain because the, the guy that I was partnered with is a bit of a, I, I mean, I'd even call him a bit of a father figure, even though he's only about 10 years older than me, but he's always had a significant role in my life. Uh, after meeting him, uh, I met him at the company that I started working for, and uh, he always took super, super good care of me. So he was more of an overseer, more so than a business partner. You know, I mean, mm. it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was an interesting relationship. So I think that's absolutely critical to everything that we do as well. Even with these coaches that I hire, I always strive to have a personal relationship with them. And it's not just my coaches, but it's anybody that I work with. Uh, even if it's a podcast guest, I want to establish a personal relationship. I do understand that coaching is a very transactional process, but above and beyond that transactional process, there has to be some sort of commitment and engagement on a deeper level. And even though I, you know, I refer to the gentleman that I met at the company that I worked for as being a bit of a father figure, I've always had this intuitive ability to draw a very definitive line between business and personal can continue to do that with my coaching clients as well as my coaches. Uh, I respect that line and it can be difficult sometimes because once money starts getting involved, lines start getting crossed. Uh, You know, they say don't ever do business with your friends because it inevitably leads to fallout of some sort. I don't know how I, I managed to pull it off, but I think it's something critical that we could all look at and ask, how can we draw that line more definitively? I mean, I can, t- I can draw the line just like the screen is split right here. Um, the same gentleman, I mean, I could go to his house and we could laugh and cut up and I could call him names and he could call me names and we could be goofy with each other. But you can bet that when Monday morning rolls around, we get back in the office, he's sir. Mm-hmm. And I, I respect that. It was the same way back in the karate days, you know. Um, I, I would hang out with all the, the head instructors, owner of the gym that I trained at. And after hours, you know, same thing, you know, doing the whole guy talk and insulting each other and giving each other a hard time and just, just having fun. But we step on that mat and it's Mr. So-and-so and it's yes, sir. And it's no, sir. Same thing in business, same thing in coaching. I'm all about having fun with my clients and getting to know my clients on a personal level. But when we get on those calls and we've got something to accomplish, it's time to get that accomplished. It's time to draw that line. And I think that's been absolutely critical in 
me establishing myself as a respectable coach and also as a respectable student is being able to draw that line. So I think that's a, a character trait. Brought that up earlier, but I think that's a character trait that is absolutely essential in what we're doing. And so tell us more, how did you learn that skill to be able to draw those lines and and define those? Because I know that is something that you know a lot of people struggle with is yeah, personal versus professional and, and how to draw those lines. And like, I mean, did you have to verbally communicate just like, hey, just so you know, off the mat, I'm going to cuss you out. But on the mat, I mean, business or like, <laughs> like how do or is it how do you make it assumed or do you, do you communicate? I'm, I'm curious how you went about all that. I mean, I definitely attribute it all back to the, the martial arts days. I mean, because we took respect like to the next level, uh, even out and about. It's funny. I had a roommate. Uh, Eric Loveless was his name. And Mr. Loveless happens to see that. What's up, Eric? Uh, and mm-hmm. it, you'll see even there, I said, Mr. Loveless. I said, if Mr. Loveless happens to see this, we always referred to each other as Mr. This or Mr. That, depending on you know our names. We would introduce ourselves and I would introduce them to new people. Oh, hey, hey, Jimmy, this is Mr. Loveless. And that's how we would introduce each other. So that respect was there. And it was always an outward appearance of respect. And there was always a clear delineation. You don't violate that. And Mm -hmm. if that respect ever did get violated, this sounds so cheesy and so machismo. But, I mean, we would literally get greenlit. And greenlit means that you're just open for an ass whooping. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. you know, it would be in the gym. It's not going to be on the streets. We're not going to get, we're not going to scrap right there. But when we got on the mat and we're training together, whether it was by ourselves or with the fight team or whatever, in the right environment, we'd get greenlit and you get lit up. And mm-hmm. that respect is earned and it's built and it's established. And I think once you understand that, I think it transcends to every aspect of your life. And mm-hmm. I know for a fact that it carried over into every aspect of my life and almost to a detriment because I look back sometimes at my corporate relationship with that last boss that I quit the, the, the tip for. And I think my expectations of respect from him were too high because I respected him, even though he's brand new, I respect him and I don't necessarily respect him as a person, but I respected his position and I expected that same respect in return and I didn't get it. And when I don't get it, I don't understand it. If I'm giving it to you, why are you not giving it back? So Mm -hmm. that's always been a struggle for me personally is understanding why we don't have that mutual respect amongst each other at all times. That expectation of mutual respect is what I believe allows me to transcend that into the relationships that I have, whether it be coaching or whether it be being coached. It's the same thing. I automatically respect you because of your position. And I expect you to respect me in return. And I think maybe even to a detriment. That's kind of wild. I didn't expect to go down that path right here. But uh, (laughs) it's interesting to think about it. And I believe that's the source of it is just understanding that respect is earned. And once it's earned, it's expected. No, that's interesting. Um, one, I know that we're not all in the karate world. So we, so if someone disrespects you, you can't take them down on a mat. So in the entrepreneur world, how do you approach that personal professional line? If you feel like they're getting blurry, essentially. Well, I think the concept is just ingrained in me there. But at the same time, you have to have open lines of communication. So yeah, yeah. We, can't, we can't turn on the green light and get on the mat and hash it out. But yeah. we need to be able to sit down and have open lines of communication and verbally express that. And with, with no uncertain terms, verbally express it. Sometimes those, those conversations can be very, very uncomfortable, but mm-hmm. they have to be had because if we sit back and we assume that we're going to get that mutual respect, guess what's going to happen? 
we're going to get our feelings hurt. And that's exactly yeah. what I did in the corporate world towards the end of my corporate career there was I let this guy get to me. I let my feelings get hurt. And we didn't have that open line of communication. I went, you know what? This, this isn't really working for me. Mm -hmm. uh, but two, to my own fault, I didn't really know how to have that conversation because I just wanted to scrap. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, man, you like to go on. <laughs> yeah, hey, man, let's, let's, let's go to the bar tonight, you know? And yeah, yeah I, I, that type of communication has to be in effect. It, you have mm -hmm. to. So going back to the, the pool sale days, I was trying to figure out your journey. And so those listening in, yeah, Larry does consulting. He does pod, podcast production. Uh, obviously, yeah. you learn from his other entrepreneurial skills. He has a lot of skills. Um, but now he's able to charge uh, several thousand dollars for his services. And, and so I wanted to know, like how you got that, that confidence and that journey to be able to do that. That's what I was trying to ask. Like, Oh, were you already getting used to paid being paid five, 10 grand from the pool services to making no. five to 10 grand in the online course world to now you're like, yeah, it's only five or 10 grand. Like, um, so tell us about that journey. Yeah, it was interesting because, you know, I left last year, January 4th and my approach at the time was, was just coaching one-on-one -on -one with individuals. And I was finding a lot of clients on clubhouse. I was finding a lot of clients this through referrals and it was going fairly good, but I wasn't charging anything. I mean, I was charging like <laughs> yeah. 600 bucks to launch a podcast. And mm -hmm. I found out quickly that people that are paying a, a nominal fee for a significant service aren't as dedicated to following through on that service as they would be had they invested uh, more so up front. And mm -hmm. I was also selling myself short. And last year sucked. It was hard. I mean, I wasn't making anything and mm. uh, I, I got very frustrated right out of the gate. But then I realized that, you know, I'm providing a high quality service. Uh, I'm shortcutting the path to podcasting success for each of the clients that I work with, uh, providing tons of value in between with custom artwork and, and um, everything you, you could possibly imagine uh, when it comes to launching a podcast and knew that I had to start charging more. And I also knew that I had to start finding different clientele. So I mm -hmm. had to start going to where the clients were that really needed a specialized service. Launching a podcast is a very specialized uh, project if you have certain goals. So if there's people that have goals to launch their podcast to extend their brand or to build their business or to grow an audience, then there are certain things that we need to put in place right out of the gate. And a lot of the independent podcasters that are just looking to launch their own readily random or their own accidentally the whole tip, uh, they <laughs> probably don't have the same goals that are in line there. So um, I took it more from a business perspective than a hobby perspective. And that's where things started to switch. You mean you went from a hobby perspective to a business perspective is how you switched your model? Yes, 100%, because I was working with a hobby podcaster mm. and was thinking that was the way that was that was going to work for me as well. But then I realized, again, that I'm selling myself short and I need to look at it from more of a business perspective. Uh, a hobby podcast is great, and I'm more than happy to help anybody launch a hobby podcast. But the ch chances of me charging for that, pretty remote. I'm just going to kind of yeah. give tips and tricks to start your hobby podcast. Mm. But if you have a very specific business model in mind for your podcast, if you have a very specific set of goals in line, for the podcast, then we're going to structure it in a way that helps you establish those goals. And that is a totally different concept and a totally different approach. And with that approach has to have a different mindset. So I started looking at it from a business perspective, from a branded podcast perspective and understanding that and understanding the value that goes there allowed me to adjust my own thinking and start charging appropriately for the services that I was providing. And then 
Another analogy I like to give is that, well, is there a difference in services before what you provide the hobby podcaster versus what you provide the business podcaster? Yeah. The hobby podcaster is just call me up and I'm going to help you out. I mean, mm-hmm. it's that there's not necessarily yeah. a, a plan in place there or a curriculum mm-hmm. that goes there. Uh, I'll, I'll help you any way that I can to grow your show. Uh, but when it comes down to launching a branded or a business podcast or a brand business or, or an organization, then we have a direct path. I mean, it is a, it's a project. There's a project plan in place. We follow that project plan to the T and we get it knocked out in the amount of time that we allot up front. Typically, we try to get it launched within six weeks. Um, rarely does it happen in six weeks because there's a whole lot that has to happen in that six week time frame. That's the goal. Uh, but we also work within, you know, your time constraints. So if, if six weeks doesn't work for you, if you can't commit to that workload, because the workload's really heavy in that first three weeks, yeah, uh, you can't commit to that workload, then we can stretch it out and we can work to accomplish your goals within your time frame. But it's a very clearly defined path and a clear curriculum that takes us from point A to point launch. That's, that's good to know. Because um, I was going to say, like, well, it's good that you vary your services based on the client. Um, and like the classic story of like, value is a lot of perception, essentially. Um, you know, you go to Costco, you can get a water bottle for 10 cents or 25 cents. You go to a Safeway or Vons and you get a water bottle for $2. Mm-hmm. You go to Whole Foods, oh my gosh, water bottles cost $4 now. You go to a hotel, they charge $8. And then we saw it was a viral receipt on the internet where at, the, at a Vegas and at a Vegas at a table, they'll charge you $75 for a water bottle. <laughs> um, but, but for the most part, the water bottle stays the same. And so the question is, how have you been able to re get people to re-perceive your value of quote unquote, only charging $600 um, for your services to now know now knowing how to go out and get clients that are charged that can pay you several thousand services and say, Oh, thank you so much, Larry. And they're not a, a pain in the ass client. Hopefully <laughs> <laughs> I do not have any pain in the ass clients. So if one of my clients is watching right now, I love it. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> but, but I'll tell you, Andrew, it goes back to what I was talking about earlier. I hired a coach. Mm-hmm. I hired a coach. I, I've mm-hmm. got coaches for everything. You know, I've got a speaking coach. I've got a business coach. I have my writing coach. I have my course coach. I have my Mm. voiceover coach. I have coaches for everything. And they help that mindset. They help instill that confidence. They provide that direction. They provide that self-evaluation that, or at least the direction for that self-evaluation that we all need to have from time to time and look at exactly what we're doing and why we're not accomplishing our personal goals. What are we doing right now that's keeping us from accomplishing those goals and what's holding us back? So that's exactly how I did it is I have one-on-one coaches. You know, a lot of people, they say, read, you got to read, you got to read. And although I'll buy just about every book out there, I'll be honest, I very rarely read them. I, I don't like getting my information from books. That sounds so cheap. That sounds terrible. But I like getting it from those that have been there before me. I like getting my information and my guidance through conversation. I don't even like listening to books. Uh, it's just It just doesn't resonate with me. But conversation resonates. And that's why I have to have coaches. That's why I have to have that one-on-one direction that gives me that guidance and, and helps me become more self-aware and points out some of my shortcomings and some of the dumb decisions that I continue to make and helps me move forward in making the right decisions. No, it makes sense. So going back to uh, coaching and branding, let's hear about the journey of how you discovered your personal branding and, and like going back to for those listening in, Larry has a red hat, he has his hoodie, he has these awesome glasses. How did that all come about? <laughs> the hoodie came about because I was fat. 
And <laughs> I, I felt the hoodies hid the gut. So that I mean that's mm. that that's the the blunt answer there. I, I just I like being comfortable, man. And e- even in the the dead of summer, I mean, I think it's it's uh, forecast to be a one eleven this Saturday here in Dallas. Oh my gosh, and, yeah. <laughs> You'll still find me in a hoodie and probably shorts. Hoodie and shorts is about my favorite combination. So mm-hmm. hoodies have just always been my thing. And, and I loved it. But the red hat came about because of Alex Sanfilippo, you know, a mutual <laughs> friend of ours. And, and I, I tell the story and Alex, he gets embarrassed every time I bring it up. But he's the reason for the red hat because mm-hmm. I was wearing, and you're probably familiar with the brand Supreme. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just a, a high-end uh, brand that's out there. And being in the podcast space, being a podcast coach, i wanted to communicate with a younger generation. I turned 50 in two months. So I, I wanted wow. to still connect with those, those wacky kids that are down there starting podcasts. So <laughs> yeah. in order to do that, I felt, you know, I still need to, to rock a, a recognizable brand. So I bought me a $150 baseball cap with a, it says Supreme on it. That's it. It's <laughs> That's a red crazy. Hat. Yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's stupid. Mm-hmm. And I bought the hat and I was rocking that for quite a while. And uh, after presenting it at PodFest Origins last November, Alex Filippo came up to me after I was done and said, hey, good job, bro. Hey, I wanted to ask you, why are you rocking that Supreme hat, man? Why are you giving Supreme all that love? Mm-hmm. And I told him the story and he goes, that doesn't even make any sense. Just, he goes, just relate to, let them relate to you. He goes, the mm-hmm. red hat's great. The red moniker is great. It makes you stand out in a crowd, but you don't need the Supreme. You're the brand. Don't rely on another brand to build your own brand. And man, it made so much sense. So I got back home. I jumped on Amazon. I ditched the $150 hat and I bought a $6 hat. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I've been rocking it ever since. And the impact that it's had just in the last nine months has been, it's been next level. Uh, I've spent most of this year on the road or a lot of this year on the road going to podcasting events and speaking at different events. And I've literally been recognized at every event because of the red hat. Uh, it's getting mm-hmm. to where people are just calling me the red hat guy because that's how I'm known in the podcast space or getting known in the podcast space. I mean, I was at Bitcoin Miami back in, what was it, April? Mm-hmm. And there's 35,000 people in attendance at this conference. And over the course of three days, I had two different people that came up to me because of the red hat go, oh, what's up, red hat, dude? <laughs> Love it, man. I've got a podcast too. Blah, blah. Like I'm sitting here in Miami. I live in Dallas. And they only recognize me in this sea of people because, well, one, I'm a little tall, about 6'3", mm-hmm. and I had this red beacon that is going off on the top of my head all the time. And it's just, it's just massive. So the hoodie and the the red hat have just become it. They, they've become the, the, the moniker and it wasn't intentional. I, I say that to a certain degree, uh, going straight red obviously was intentional based on Alex's feedback, but I was doing it for totally different reasons and never understood the impact that it could have. And uh, it's, it's been tremendous. So it's still evolving. Uh, my personal brand before was really just being outspoken and giving great presentations. I mean, being in front of people all my life, it's just, it's where I've always excelled speaking and presenting and teaching. It's always been my, my, my number one go-to. I mean, again, going back to even my start of my corporate career, started off as a corporate trainer and it just evolved, you know, taught karate, uh, used to be a big member of Toastmasters back in the day. Uh, speaking's always just been fun. Did some of the stand-up comedy as well. Uh, it, it's always just been an evolution of, of the brand and who I am today, but it's all been little building blocks. I wish I had a clearer path, 
but now I'm here and I can help others get here. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. You get a coach because they can give you that clear path and let you miss all those little pitfalls. Inevitably, there we go, going to run into along the way. Yeah, and uh, and speaking of uh, speaking and presentations, tell us a little bit about that. That for those listening in, like, oh, I want to be a speaker. I want to get on stages. Like, how's how'd you get into that? How's that going for you? T- tell us about that journey. Yeah, it was interesting because what ended up happening was I started finding these small events that were online. You know, there were some small podcasting conferences online, some small marketing conferences that were online. And I reached out to promoters and said, hey, man, could I potentially speak on your show? And uh, started building those relationships. And before you know it, I was speaking on these smaller events, some of them happening on the weekend. And literally, you look up, if you've ever been on Facebook Live, you know, you can look up there in the top left-hand corner and see how many people are watching. Mm-hmm. And um, there was more than once that that was a zero, but mm-hmm. I was still sitting there. I was still presenting. I was still taking part. I was still, we talked about it earlier, showing up. I was still showing up. I was honing my skills. I was honing my presentations. I was perfecting my craft and also learning more about the industry as I presented about it. And that started opening up bigger doors and more doors and more doors. And in all honesty, COVID came in and played a tremendous, had a tremendous impact on me leaving corporate America ahead of schedule because bigger events started going virtual. And because I had the experience on these smaller virtual stages, I was able to start speaking on some of these bigger virtual stages. Then the virtual stages, once we started kind of getting a little beyond COVID, I know that's a a sensitive subject there, but once we started accepting the fact that it's here, uh, big events, live events started opening up again. And that started opening Mm -hmm. up opportunities for me to get on stages there. And now we're, you know, we're going full bore ahead now and there's tons of live events and I've been able to speak on quite a few stages this year. So that was the evolution of that. But again, it started off very, very small, very, very uh, online, very niche. And I just showed up and I kept showing up and I kept showing up just like we did with accidentally the whole tip. We kept showing up to these meetings. We kept showing up to opportunities to present the brand, to present the message, to, to, find a new audience. It was that that's the key to all of it. it. It continues to present opportunities now, but we continue to show up. That's the secret. Show up. Yeah. And as an entrepreneur, I'm curious, would you rather be a full-time um, paid podcaster or full-time paid speaker or full-time paid coach? But obviously as an entrepreneur, you have to have multiple skills, multiple incomes, but if you had to pick one or two of those that you could rely on consistently to be your full-time income, which would you choose and why? If if it was my ultimate choice and I had that opportunity, I would be a full-time paid speaker. Uh, mm-hmm. I love getting on stage. I love working with an audience. I love working a crowd. And it's interesting because back in the days when I would compete, whenever you, you had a fight, you know, training for the fight and leading up to the fight, that's the most nerve-wracking part, right? Mm-hmm. But when you stepped into the ring and you started actually competing, you kind of go into a zone. And it was very euphoric at the time. You go into the zone of performance and you just feel invincible. You just feel like you can't be touched. And speaking has gotten to the point where I feel that same way. And there's no other place that I've ever found that euphoric performance type feeling that I had in the ring other than speaking on stage. So Mm. that would be why I would want to do it full time because man, it is just a ton of fun and I have a blast and it gives me a natural high that I just can't compete with anywhere else. So I love it. Yeah. Getting into speaking. And as we wrap up here, I have some few more questions here. Um, 
What do you believe are the non-negotiable actions of an entrepreneur to be successful? Showing up, number one, continuing your education, continuing your evolution, and self-mastery. I think those three are, are absolutely critical. You have to know yourself. You have to know your shortcomings. You have to know what motivates you. You have to know what inspires you, and you have to know how to control that. You have to know how, when you want to start listening to Pink Floyd, you turn Pink Floyd off and you turn <laughs> on something that's much more much more uh, constructive to your mood, constructive to your direction. It's, it's absolutely critical that that self-mastery comes into play. Uh, once you have that self-mastery down, you can go into the continuing education. You can start learning. You can continue your coaching. You can continue learning, evolving, uh, understanding your craft, getting a deeper understanding of what you can do to help your clients and your customers. And then uh, obviously showing up, uh, that, that rounds it out. So you have to continually show up. So those would be my three keys. Uh, I know you just uh, kind of described some questions to ask yourself for self-mastery, but is there a way to have people feel like they've achieved some levels of self-mastery? Like, I guess the question, first question is, what does self-mastery mean to you? And how can people feel like, okay, I have a good sense of self-mastery now and now I can get more confidence in my business essentially? Self-mastery to me is doing stuff you have to do even when you don't want to do it. I mean, that's that's self-mastery. Yeah, If you got to get up at 5 a.m. every day and you don't want to get up at 5 a.m. every day, get up at 5 a.m. every day. Make yourself do it. Make yourself do the stuff that you don't want to do because you know inside that you have to do it. So taking control of yourself, having the self-discipline, having the self-motivation, having the drive to make yourself do shit you don't want to do, even though you know you need to do it. That's what it means to me. I love that answer. That's such a good answer. And then let's see, as a successful entrepreneur, what gets you fired up every day to get up out of bed and get up at 5 a.m. and, and build your business? Oh, I don't get up at 5 a.m. I didn't mean oh. to. Look. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> it was just an example. I was, oh, okay. okay. That's for other people, of course. Yeah, all those other guys, all those other ones. <laughs> but man, what gets me excited every day is knowing that it's going to be different, knowing there's something new that's on the horizon and it's going to be exciting. I, I love just seeing what the day brings. Granted, I'm not going into every day blind. I definitely have a plan for every day, but I also know that somewhere throughout that day, something's going down and I don't know exactly what that's going to be. And addressing that head on and dealing with it and accepting it, that's part of the fun. And, you know, it, it breaks that monotony of getting up at seven, getting dressed, going to the office, going mm -hmm. to your sitting down and doing whatever you do and go to lunch at 12 and come back at one and then get off at five and I can't do that. <laughs> it's not my thing. So knowing that I have the freedom to adapt and change and address whatever comes my way that day, that's what's exciting to me. I love it. I love it. And Larry, uh, last couple of questions here. If people were to listen to this, well, when people listen to this interview, where's the one takeaway you want them to have um, based on everything we talked about and things you want them to learn and know about? And I'll tell you the one thing that I want everybody to take away from any time that I make an appearance anywhere is to show up, mm -hmm. know your goals and show up where show up. I love it. Well, Larry, this has been awesome and incredible. And I love how you brought the energy and the passion as always. How can people best get a hold of you if they're like, I want to be cool like Larry. I want to be his friend. I want to be mentored by him. I want to be coached by him. I need a podcast produced by him. How can they get a hold of you? Probably the easiest way if you want to schedule a call with me is head over to meetlarryroberts.com. My calendar is mm -hmm. over there. You can always reach out, schedule a time. I'll hop on the phone with you. We'll do a little Zoom session. We'll hang out, get to know each other, and I'll help you any way that I possibly can. You can also find me on Instagram at the Larry Roberts. So follow me on Instagram if you, if you get the opportunity. I'd love to see you there. 
And are you still active on Clubhouse? Because I, I know at one point you're one of the Clubhouse app's top moderators in the country, if not the world at one point, right? <laughs> yeah, I am not. I am not active. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's a there's a room that I visit once a month. It's uh, Jody Krangle's room, and she talks oh. about podcasting. And mm-hmm. I do show up there once a month. But aside from that, I'm no longer on Clubhouse. So. That's okay. What, what's that room called in case there's any Clubhouseers listening in? Jody Krangle's podcast room. I, I honestly don't even know the room. It's okay. <laughs> so it's all good. All right. Well, Jody Krangle, she has a ton of rooms and Jody's amazing. She's yes, always she is. power of sound. So uh, if you have an opportunity, find her on Clubhouse and, and join one of her rooms. I agree. Well, Larry Roberts, everyone, thank you for joining us today and for dropping so many golden nuggets and knowledge bombs. Um, and uh, definitely check them out on meetlarryroberts.com. Check them out on Instagram. And we'll see you all next week for next week's podcast. See you, everyone. That concludes another episode of Rapid Results. Remember to leave a review about something you learned so others can share the knowledge. Keep being unstoppable in your pursuit of the lifestyle freedom you desire. And we'll see you next week.